So I've been very fortunate in my career of having a boss who recognised that um, in order to ensure that we have proper waste management internationally, there was the need to establish more networks to bring the developing countries up to a higher standard in their management of their waste. What I spent 20 years doing. I'm Jeff Cooper, and you're listening to Gut Talks. That's double G U double T. Jeff Cooper is a well-known expert in waste management with over 30 years of experience in shaping policies and finding innovative waste solutions. He held prestigious leadership positions as the Vice President of the International Solid Waste Association and the Chartered Institution of Waste Management. His vast expertise in the space can help us reflect on our personal actions and business practices as waste can be everything, anywhere, anytime. He has advised governments, companies, and organizations globally on best practices in waste strategy, infrastructure, and operations. He sheds light on the economic opportunities within the waste landscape today in the public and private sectors. I hope listeners take away a shifted perspective on waste as a resource holding immense social, environmental, and financial value yet to be unlocked. So, here we go. This podcast is brought to you by GUT, fostering a culture of innovation to build better products, ventures, and cultures. I'm Maria, and I enjoy adding value and helping wherever I can, widening my spectrum of thoughts, even if it can sometimes challenge the mainstream. This is why we give data a voice and co-create a collective intelligence involving both people who are not always in the limelight and those who are, in order to learn from each other and spread knowledge and critical thinking. All I ask is to leave a review and share. It's a fantastic way to help other podcast explorers discover our content. Now let's get started. Jeff, thank you so much for being on Gut Talks. I'm really pleased that we're doing this. Well, I'm really pleased, Maria, that you invited me to do this because it's been a couple of years since I last did the podcast, so about time I did another one. I'm going to give a big shout out to Stephanie, your wife. She kind of alluded to having you. And I'm really excited because I think what we're going to talk about today is waste management. It's a big topic. It's a trendy topic today. But when you started, it was not that trendy. It was not that sexy, I guess. But now it is. Am I correct? You're absolutely right. When I first started waste management, what we were doing in the UK was landfill all the waste that was coming out of people's houses and most of the waste that was coming out from industry as well. Your background is in geography. What is it that got you into waste management? Well, what got me into waste management as a professional waste manager, a thesis was developed by one of my final year students and he was looking very closely at the future of waste management in London but what he didn't was look at the potential for recycling or energy recovery. For me 
it was important that I finished off that piece of work, which I devoted time to instead of completing my PhD thesis. Nevertheless, it worked out extremely well because what then happened was that one of my future colleagues in the Greater London Council handed me a piece of paper as we were having a drink in a pub and said, you might be interested in this job, Jeff. Well, the job sounded incredibly interesting, had pay grade, was um, unbeknownst to me, quite uh, a senior one. It was certainly more than I was then currently earning as a lecturer. But I decided the job was so appealing, I applied for it, irrespective of how much I paid. And after an interview, which was a very bizarre interview, I did in fact end up being offered the job and accepted it. And that was where I started my career as a professional waste manager. I was recycling coordinator for the Greater London Council. That's where you started, but that's not where you ended. So can you take us through your journey, maybe highlighting the activities that you would undertake, just to give a perspective of what happens in waste management that many people might not be aware of? Well, I started as the, the recycling coordinator for the Greater London Council and very soon realised that actually we needed much more in terms of staff dealing with that issue. So therefore, I got established a number of initiatives to ensure that we had more staff both in the Greater London Council, but also a network of people in the rest of the country. So it was actually quite good because I was given the freedom to spend time developing my connections, not only with other local authorities, but also with the community sector, very important aspects um, dealing with waste, and colleagues internationally as well. So I've been very fortunate in my career of having a boss who recognised that um, in order to ensure that we have proper waste management internationally, there was the need to establish more networks bring the developing countries up to a higher standard in their management of their waste. What I spent 20 years doing as a senior member of the team of the International Solid Waste Association. I'm finally handing over the microphone and moving it from myself to you, but that's, uh, that's part of the experiment in uh, recording this uh, episode in this small studio that is not equipped for like in-person episodes. So apologies for the lighting as well for those who are watching this on video, but the sound should be all right. So Jeff, you, you highlighted something quite interesting here. And 
And I'm going to go back to a story. And the reason why I'm, I'm sharing this story is because I think some of it has sort of... Um, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was completely true. But um, I'm from Lebanon originally. And I heard once that there was waste that was toxic that has been shipped from... I can't remember which country, to Lebanon, obviously via the means of corruption that we can be very familiar with. What is the impact of this? And as you've been traveling for conferences, for meetings to support countries and companies in their waste management processes and so on, how did that play a role? Well, it's, um, it's very interesting because... One of the um, areas I have worked in is extended producer responsibility. And extended producer responsibility essentially places onus on those that have waste under control to make sure it's dealt with properly. So if you've got things like electrical equipment or you've got hazardous materials those should be consigned to properly equipped facilities to be dealt with but sadly too often we have instances where that waste is actually sent seas and is dumped in areas which cannot handle that waste in any way. So we find, for example, that there's waste electrical and electronic equipment that has gone to West Africa. A lot of it has gone also to countries in Southeast Asia, being exported by, again, a variety of developed countries. This is in the case of the United States because they haven't signed up to the Basel Convention on Transfrontier Shipment of Waste. So, therefore, there's no responsibilities on the US government as far as that's concerned. And in other cases, it's because of corruption. Corruption both in the countries that are exporting by people that putting material into containers and disguising it, misapplying waste and corruption also when it going into the countries where it's being exported by people there not doing the proper checks. This is understandable in that those countries have poor regulation often they have very poor enforcement therefore you can end up with a few hundred dollars passed to somebody and container going into a country that to be sent back to the originating exporting country so in in a nutshell i think to to the listeners here because you know the, the podcast is more focused on product design, entrepreneurship, and everything that goes around really, personal development. And, and I see waste management is, is, is part of it, is part of any 
business and it's part of the mindset either you have it or you don't and, and it's not for everyone because there isn't so much awareness around it and around the real impact because the first picture one would have in mind waste management is just the trash but there is more industrial wars like unfortunately you know it's part of what happens every day many um many industries and humans like to survive there is waste everywhere around us and it might not be visible so what are the impacts of good and bad waste management well the impacts of poor waste management are in some cases disease ill health and this is particularly in developing countries where waste is badly or dumped quite often burnt or scavenged and quite often as materials attached items so you can end up on poor health in those areas wasted. In developed countries, I think the main effect is that when actually dealing with our waste in an effective way, and hence we could be doing something but much more productive with many of the items might be being discarded into our ordinary bin as residual waste rather segregated out and sent to be reused. So for me, it's actually gets people handling waste, dealing with waste, it's got to dealt appropriate way. And, and just to highlight that this is um, what you do in your day-to-day -day life. So you, you live by it and you're very careful in what you buy, how you manage your own waste as well. And because we've spoken many times, and, but not in depth, you're not one to come and tell anyone like, no, this is wrong and you shouldn't be doing that. How can you do this? Well, you can, you can only do it. I think by persuasion, you, there's various different ways that you use to persuade people. We can we can do it on social media. We can do it through authorities providing facilities that people can easily use. We can make sure there's proper systems in place. There's good information on packaging for example and so on but in the end it's personal responsibility so one of the things that i've always been interested is better design so one of the things that i was very keen on i came across four years ago was a uh, a system of packaging wine in plastic bottles but these were plastic bottles that were carefully shaped so that you could, in a container, pack 12 into a space that 
would be occupied by less half capacity that you would need for conventional wine bottles, i.e. glass wine bottles. Now, there has been a number of initiatives to establish these systems. I say these systems because I was aware of one system, a recent aware second system. But actually, we as consumers are very reluctant to change our habits so that um, we like our wine in conventional wine bottles. We don't like wine out of cans, plastic bottles. So actually, if we were to change our habits and have wine from these uh, new plastic containers, then the price of wine might be reduced slightly because we'd be improving the overall efficiency of delivering wine from the grower to the consumer because we'd be taking probably two out of three lorries transporting wine off the road. So that would be a, a win-win for everybody, I think. So have you have you ever had like wine from a can? Well, I have to yes I have. I have consumed wine from a can. I've also had it out of a carton. Uh, and it's it's been perfectly fine. In fact, there was one time when you could get quite easily, particularly in Spain, but I haven't seen them recently. Oh, that's uh, that's very interesting. The, the only uh, wine I've seen in uh, carton bottles are wines just used for cooking. However, my question would be, I know we're topic, not we're just having a conversation here, is what would happen to aged wine? Well, you have to make a distinction between fine wines and ordinary. For me, a fine wine does need be in a bottle and it needs to have a proper cork as well preferably a nice long cork but um, most people are buying wine on a day or a week or a monthly basis and hence could actually have quite a reasonable drink of wine out of different types of containers can't so that's an interesting one for whoever is into wine. That could be a good branding exercise. Just like we have liquid death, which is the water in cans that is huge in the US. I have two things here. The first one is you mentioned um, consumer resistance. And I remember I was once at a conference, let's say from a renowned fizzy drink brand, that's huge. It was at the Milan Design Week and someone asked this question at the conference, which was about sustainability and health and whatever. And how come are you still producing consumer products that are really unhealthy? And the response was, well, we tried to do consumer products that are healthy. No one bought them. And so what's, what's your take on, on this? Because I feel that this conversation could be replicated when it comes to waste. I think, I think you're absolutely right. There are so many 
resistance is to change. Some human beings, I think, are very naturally conservative in their habits, and therefore it's very difficult to persuade people to adopt new systems for dealing with their waste. So in this country, local authorities have to do a lot of work whenever they're introducing a new system. And sometimes that means changing from a residual waste collection every week to a residual waste collection every fortnight. Now that, some people, means only waste around. Well, actually, except in extremely high temperatures, most waste fits in a wheeled bin contained. It's not an issue. But still, nevertheless, if people are faced with having that kind of change, they will um, yeah, change is a big thing, actually. Uh, like all across waste, not waste, even, you know, basic things in, you know, team dynamics, many things. So that's, that's a big topic. It's just, it's like there's this article I read. Uh, the topic was everyone wants uh, to innovate and no one wants to change. And this is so true and just based on what you're saying. But since you spoke about wine, and, and one of the reasons I wanted to have this episode with you was to share stories because this is actually what led us to having this podcast today. So let's start with this story of the shoebox. So you mentioned a shoebox and you said you, you made a comment or an observation. You said this is a big shoebox for the size of the shoes. So can you take us through this story? Actually, how waste marketing and actually consumer behavior, business or shareholder uh, requests or requirement, uh, branding. I mean, all those dynamics that come into play when we talk about products and services. Right. Well, it's, it's actually quite interesting because one of the um, areas spent most of my working life in is extended producer responsibility. And extended producer responsibility is basically founded on the idea if you place an obligation on a company to deal more responsibly with its waste, then it will try to design its waste. However, the uh, example of the shoebox, which was actually a very large shoebox, it was at least twice the size of shoeboxes I purchased in the past. I was amazed to find it was partly because they were supposed replicating the um, feel of looking barefoot that um, was the main emphasis as far as their marketing was concerned. appeared in the box, flat on the bottom of the box, and hence you needed that extra width. So this means, therefore, as one experienced so many times, 
marketing trump need for better resource management. I first came across this in a conference specifically on marketing. I was there as the token environmental speaker. So it was obvious was being said that uh, marketing, particularly of packaging, was all important. The environmental aspects were very low down on the agenda as far as businesses are concerned. And it's still the case. You've still got an emphasis on marketing as far as most consumer products are concerned, rather than actually dealing with the effective resource management of that packaging. So for me, we've still got a long way to go in order to ensure we have more effective management of our resources. That's, uh, that, that, that's a tough one, actually, to, uh, to get different parties to compromise, because if they have business objectives, they would say, no, I need to do this. How to manage all this and how to prove that there's maybe an economic value of waste in a different way to convince the likes of yourself? Well, I think, I think it's extremely difficult. One has to accept that if companies are prepared to pay the extra costs associated with those bigger boxes, the extra packaging, so be it. I mean, it's um, quite interesting when you look at the costs associated with packaging different products, how much is actually spent on the packaging compared to the content. In the case of uh, sugar, a staple product many people, the um, cost of the packaging is 2% the total cost of producing the sugar. In the case of perfume, well, it can go to 25-30% the total cost associated with that particular product. And that's talking about the end product to the consumer. You have the choice to make. It's interesting that, you know, when the perfume companies now say refillable, I begin to wonder the heck is going on because there's very few people would actually buy for a loved one a container that was a refill. I I just have here a few a few stories I would like to touch on, and one one of them was let's take a mundane product, and it's something you mentioned once, which is a bed sheet in a hotel, and you had the calculations done on how often should the bed sheets be changed and so on. Can you just, I think I was paraphrasing here, can you just expand on this? Well, it's actually quite, it's quite an interesting one. I mean, certainly when we were doing some work, as far as textile recovering recycling was concerned, in the midst of the crisis, there were fewer people that were actually prepared to pay high prices for hotels. So what was happening 
in those instances was that hotels themselves were changing the quality of the sheep that they were purchasing. So what was happening was that um, instead of the sheets going through a hundred washes before they were then passed on and discarded, they were only doing 75 or even 60 in those cases. So for me, this is one of the uh, strange things about um, the, uh, the textile issues generally. I think got to have best quality textiles in order to get a good life out of them. And I think that applies to bed sheet as well as the items that we buy for clothing, for example. What's the most unexpected thing you came across over the years in waste management, right? Like, is there a story or an anecdote you can share just like we discussed, or you mentioned wine, bed sheet, shoe boxes. Well, that is a strange question, but I think one of the uh, the weirdest things that I've come across is actually opera based upon waste management. This was um, an opera in Swedish. One of my colleagues invited us to join him this particular waste opera that played over three nights to capacity audiences, I have to say. But um, actually, it was a variation of the theme of boy meets girl, girl dumps boy, boy then does something environmentally good, girl comes back to us. So it was really... Very little to do with waste. But it did have quite a few waste themes in it. So that's, I think, one of the most intriguing aspects of waste management I've come across. Somebody would sponsor a uh, an opera in the middle of Sweden. And just going back to the bottles idea, and I, I just want to touch on uh, toothpaste and some other detergent bottles. I once read that they made the hole bigger so you can waste more or use more when you don't need that much, let's say, soap or detergent or toothpaste or whatever. Is this true? Well, it certainly was true at one time. I think, again, one of the things that has been encouraged I don't know whether it's actually worked in practice, is that um, companies have trying to cut down both on the um, amount of washing powder for your washing and also the amount of packaging they actually use. I think one of the difficulties there is that uh, consumers are quite often used to putting us washing powder into their washing machine and hint they may not be getting, as it were, the full benefit. I have to say one of the quirks in my household is that um, we don't use fabric soft. 
Now, why don't we use fabric soft? It's because fabric soft causes um, mold actually in the machine. I have to say the towels that we use are more like cardboard, drying yourself on cardboard. But nevertheless, we don't have the black mold we used to have. So perhaps there's a hint for the future or for manufacturers to produce some that doesn't actually produce that end result. Then there's always room for innovation, whereas it's, it's in the, the products or the packaging. Because even with the, the toothpaste and so on, you can get all the toothpaste out, right? So there's lots of waste going on here too. So is, is there any other story you can share on like something from your household or something from, I don't know, a restaurant or something like that that can be a nice story for the listeners to remember and to share? Because I think one of the best ways of, uh, as you said, you said persuasion, people just share some stories and other people can relate to them and start making changes. Well, again, the 2008 actual crisis was that important colleagues of mine decided they would try to do something about food waste. And one of the things that they did was to try to persuade restaurants to produce half portions of the food they normally have. Actually, the half portions were more than sufficient for most people, I have to say. There's a heck of a lot of food waste associated with the hospitality sector. If we can persuade the hospitality sector to uh, be a bit careful in terms of how it liaises with customers and provides good service, but also the amount of, I think, again, a situation. I think we can just talk for the next 25 hours and there would be stories out there in any, any sector and micro, macro, whatever. So I just want to throw this one here, just going back to the name of the podcast. What's your approach? when it comes to your gut feeling and your decision-making process somehow. Just like, just like you, you, you got into waste management because you just like the, you know, the offer you had and you went for it. Well, I have to say that I got into waste management mainly because of my interest in ensuring that we have a better world, that we waste less and that we utilize what we dig out of the ground uh, in a much more effective way. So for me, it's always been my mantra, prevent waste where we can, reuse waste whenever possible, and then recycle. But the recycling aspect is on the Japanese hierarchy. What about your gut feeling? This subject of waste is so vast that we are never actually going to solve it on an international basis unless there is more funding that is made available, particularly for third world countries, 
although there has been some progress, sad, it's very little so far. It's important that we keep pressing our international aid and our national governments to ensure that. Is, is waste management going to become a space where, um, I mean, I don't know how to frame it, but, but would it be, if you want, a, a, a topic of interest where you would have different stakeholders or even countries fighting over waste that has been managed? Um, gosh, in my ideal world, this would be the case. People would be wanting to have that material so they got access to those raw materials. Let's think about it logically. We have substitution of one type of material for another, and we have lots of ways in which we can extend the utility of raw materials. So, for example, the wiring that we've got surrounding us here in this studio has got thinner and thinner over time. So that has meant that every ton of copper is producing a greater and greater length of wire. Quality standards have to improve in order to ensure that you end up with the very thin wire and causes a fire. But nevertheless, that can be done. And so, over time, we're getting more resource efficient and substituting one type of material for another type of material. So, for example, there's quite a lot of substitution aluminium for markets that previously would be occupied by copper. But that kind of substitution, I suppose, might have an economic limit. But I've not come across any evidence that that is the case, that um, this kind of substitution will always work out. So there's a particular problem at the moment with lithium batteries, that people are saying, well, we shouldn't be, one, having disposable batteries, which I entirely agree with, but we haven't got the reprocessing capacity to deal with all the lithium batteries that will be generated by our electric vehicles of various types, the e-bikes and so on, in the future. But trying to develop that now is actually extremely difficult because the technologies are not sufficient at the moment, but we have to continue with research in order to ensure that that can be done. But we're not going to run out of lithium. If we find that the price of lithium increases, then we've got a whole host of new battery technologies that are coming along, including sodium batteries, or a new type lithium battery, which is lithium-iron um, rather than 
lithium iron, but uh, new types of batteries that could come along and substitute in certain areas where lithium batteries are currently being used and are the mainstay, particularly static storage devices, those that are taking electricity that's generated, storing it, peak use by consumers for moderating the frequency of the, uh, the current. It's that kind of thing. Thank you for that. And actually, you, you, um, you mentioned uh, technology in the context of like lithium batteries specifically, which are pretty much it, every device we use. So that's uh, a big, a big thing. So my question here, if you reflect back on your career when you first started, how did technology and some of the innovative methods changed the way we deal with waste management. I see you're laughing here. So, did anything change? Well, yes. Um, there's quite a few changes that have come about, and there are a lot of very fascinating changes that are due to um, mainstream much more in the future. So, for example, if we consider barcodes or beverage containers, for example. In Norway, what they do there is that um, they pass those barcodes across a scanner, so it's possible for aluminium cans, for example, to uh, read the, uh, the coding and to be able to tell which manufacturer has actually produced that can. You can then, on the basis of that, do a couple of very interesting things. You can charge those companies that are not getting their cans back to a required level more for the cans that they produce. But the other thing that you can, and this was done recently, uh, you can actually have a, uh, a marketing exercise so that... Um, particular cans, particular types of drinks cans, you can ask the uh, 16 to 25-year-olds drinking that particular brand to think about how they properly dispose of the can after they've used it. I won't mention the product, but it's, it's, it's quite a common one is also major sponsor for very successful Formula One uh, company as well. Can I mention it? No. <laughs> so you, you mentioned, you know, 16 years old plus. How have you, let's say, observed or seen the um, evolution of consumer behavior at different stages is there more interest or more interest and action or nothing at all? Like, what's your take? Like, I'm not going into statistics here. I just want to see your view today, maybe in England, but also overseas. Well, I think in the developed world, and England is a prime example, what 
tends to happen is that young people, i.e. those that are under 16, tend to be very concerned about the environment. And hence, uh, they are actually quite responsible in dealing with waste. More particularly, they persuade parents and grandparents and other relatives to deal with their waste much more responsibly. However, when they reach 14, 15, 16, there are other priorities alive, and hence concern about the environment and properly with waste resources tends to go by the board. Until then, partner up, have their own children, for onwards, those children can persuade. What tends to happen is because people are very busy in their mid-life, i.e. often work-related issues, relationship issues, and this is, I think, on the statistics, actually, most developing well, concern about dealing with waste properly in the later years of life is quite a high priority. So there's a big gap here going on, and I think this is this is an important part where I would say that there's lots of waste going on that where people are dismissing waste management until they get interested again. Do you think social media, in a way, is helping? You know, I saw this video on YouTube where there was a, a person who has a social media account being filmed by a friend as she was picking trash, like around the sea and, you know, the sand or whatever. Unknown to her that someone was filming the scene thinking, oh, this is really great. But actually, as soon as it, that was like for a specific moment for social media and for social media likes, follows, and so on. So, is social media supporting in creating awareness, but also action uh, towards waste management? Social media can be a great aid. I mean, there are municipalities in the UK that do use it on a very regular and active basis, it can work very effectively. I mean, the instances that you refer to, I think, did work extremely well. There was a general encouragement of people, for instance, to do litter picking on beaches, and I think it's now more regular volunteer litter picking on beaches and there is more awareness mainly because of David Attenborough about uh, plastics in the sea and trying to the plastics of beaches out of the system so that is actually very and um, on the whole I think social media can work extremely effectively but actually, there's very little you look 
in terms of the number of transactions that take place via social. I, I have a question for you here. What is like, or what was one of the biggest challenges you faced in your career when it comes to the subject, whereas it's dealing with different stakeholders with different interests, specifically, you know, when you talk about businesses that have big money here involved, how to get balance out between what they want, what they can have, and so on. Because here we're talking about government, big organizations, and then the consumers actually are lost, lost in the equation. Well, that is a very interesting area because you have to have, to my way of thinking, a very coherent system. And having a very coherent system means that you have to have government involvement setting the rules. You have to have local government, which has the, uh, the wherewithal to uh, ensure that there are systems in place so that consumers can easily, in this case, recycle. And you have to have the willingness of industry to ensure that the whole of that system is properly, properly financed and funded. But... Um, there's only a few places that seems to work out. And one of those places is, strangely enough, Wales. Now, why is it that Wales has got the best of the devolved administration's recycling schemes in the UK? Well, it's mainly because that particular place is a, uh, an authority that has a lot of environmental responsibilities, but it also has quite a lot of funding. And that means, therefore, that it's able to do a lot of interesting work. For example, on national television, there has recently been advertising for recycling by the Welsh Government. And that's on national television. So, in other words, it's reaching you know, a huge number of consumers in England and Scotland and Northern Ireland, as well as Wales. But nevertheless, you know, it's, it's excellent that they're doing it. So that means that there's money there to enable them to do that. But there's money also to set up local authorities to do things and provide industry with funding to set up facilities for the reclamation of waste, particularly biodegradable waste, for example. So, you know, you've got to have all these things established in order to get an effective system. So you, you mentioned local authorities quite a few times, actually, here and so on. So I, I don't want to touch on regulations, and they change all the time, you know. So... I think this that would be a waste of words, put it that way. How to get, I won't say buy-in from, let's say, employees of an organization, but the shareholders of the organization to 
invest more and pay attention more to waste management, how would you convince someone? Because there would be an investment to do as well at some point. So it's not going to just happen like that, you know? So what's the pitch? Ensuring that you've got a much more resource efficient company, you can maximize the profit of that company. So, for example, reduce the amount of wastage of energy. If you can reduce the wastage of water, reduce the wastage, the, the waste materials going out of the system, you can do a hell of a lot. So I've reviewed some interesting papers. It's been quite interesting looking at the range of opportunities that prove the effect of heavy steel reutilize a lot of the energy that previously was to waste. So that is something continues to be done. But they've now taken the decision that they change that system. On the other hand, there is a Scottish company that produces soup in particular, it also produces lots of other things. And they had a, a very comprehensive all of their waste. They were able to reutilize a lot of the material previously was going to waste. So in that instance, it's a win-win. So you have to look very closely at what you actually do in each individual company and very comprehensive resource management assessment. Was that the fun part? That was. Um, I mean, it is. It is fun when you actually do it. I mean, I participate in a number of exercises, major hotels and companies producing pharmaceuticals. It's quite interesting when you actually spend time and effort and the employees themselves have often got some extremely good ideas of how efficiencies can be made with regard to the materials that are actually going through that production process. I like that you're kind of touching on co-creation here in a certain way. And, and it's true, bottom-up approaches and ideas can support because when you're high up, there, there's not always visibility on what's happening underground because there are other things, other priorities. So putting all mindsets together to come up with something that can satisfy, I will say, everybody <laughs> somehow. You're absolutely right. I mean, you need that commitment from the top, but you also got to allow people that are actually doing the work on a day-to-day -day basis to uh, participate and to make inputs into whatever it is that you're wishing to achieve. And actually, co-creation is a very powerful tool if you actually get it right and can benefit as a company because quite often you can find some very interesting individuals within your work who could 
benefit from doing further work, further research, further study. Um, is there anything here you would like, like a call to action or um, a recommendation you would like to share? Well, I think for me, the most important thing is think about what you do with anything that you actually buy. Packaging surrounding item to the product that is actually inside because everybody can undertake a value assessment of the materials that they have to have. So, for example, one of the things that we've seen recently, which I think is actually quite encouraging, is that there's people who are interested in buying second-hand fashion items. For me, that's incredibly encouraging. I can recommend certain areas of central London where some really good clothing can be purchased. This is in the Marleybone area. It's just north of Oxford Street, so don't go to Oxford Street to the stores there. Just go to the retail outlet. And then, Jeff, make sure you say Jeff Cooper so you get your commission. <laughs> well, no, you won't be supporting me in any way, apart from happy that you're actually doing some positive. Thank you so much, Jeff, for being on Gut Talks. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Um really pleased we've had this opportunity thanks thank you so much for listening if you've derived value from the show you can subscribe on platforms like spotify apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts your feedback is incredibly important to us so please consider rating the show or leaving a review it's a fantastic way to help other podcast explorers discover our content to gain more insights, visit our website at ggutt.com. This is wgutt.com. And see you next time.